Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. As we continue with our month of guest speakers at Bethesda Church, today you get to hear from Dan Copeland. Dan has spoken a handful of times at Bethesda and is the Bible teacher at our local Christian school. Today, Dan is going to be sharing with us on the topic of worshiping God. We encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with Dan. Hopefully you've had a second while I was ponderificating to to take a look at the, the overhead. Why do we come to church? You know, there's a lot of reasons. And, uh, you know, I teach a discipleship course during the school year, and uh, I give five reasons why you need to be in church. And, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, you know, we come to receive teachings, we come for fellowship, we want to encourage each other. Those are all scriptural, uh, biblical reasons to come. By the way, am I really loud, or is it just me? Just me. Okay. Uh, if it's too loud, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a yeller, so, you know, get ready with that switch, Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, there's a lot of reasons, and they're biblical reasons, but there's one primary reason why we gather on Sunday morning. There's the overarching reason, and that overarching reason is to worship, okay? It's to worship God. Um, all the other things that we do in church and with church and through church, we can do through a Bible study. You can do it privately, uh, you know, at home alone. Um, you can do it in a club, as a matter of fact, there's a lot of similarities between church and a club, but the one primary thing that differentiates a church and a club is that we come to worship. We come to spend time in very intentional, focused um, worship of our Lord, okay? Now, that applies primarily for, I, I actually I would say exclusively, ultimately, for believers, okay? Um, I would love to, actually, when I originally wrote this sermon, I had like an altar call at the end and, and a you know, in a gospel presentation, and, uh, you know, unless we want to be here for a really long time, I'm not going to get there. But I'm just going to be very frank from the very beginning. I don't want to be offensive. But what I have to say is for people who know Christ personally as their Lord and Savior. Now, why do I say that? Because the reality is unless you, don't, uh, unless you do know Christ, then worship is entertainment. It's a show. It's something we do. If you do know Christ then it actually has a, a very different and very significant meaning. So I hope and I pray that you know Christ today. If you don't, you may be very confused by what I have to say. If you do know Christ, I hope you're challenged by it, but not confused. I, I want to go for clarity. Um, the primary reason to come to church is to worship God. Now, there's two aspects of worship that come together, okay? I'm not going to get too deep in the theology, because I, I love the theology of worship, and uh, we've had some great sermons lately about that, by the way. I remember um, Pastor Anthony, he, he talked about the different modes and means of worship in Scripture. And uh, about a year ago or so, Wes talked about the cost of worship, looking at Abraham. And so uh, those were great, and they covered a lot of the theology. I'm only going to mention, you know, some concepts that I want to get to the practical, to the, to the what does it actually mean for me kind of concept. So let me talk real quick about the two aspects of worship. The first is the external, okay? This is the part that, well, obviously it's what we're doing today, right? We, we come together at a specific event. It's planned out. We join together. We sing a song together. We pray together. We take communion together. We listen to a sermon together, okay? 
And for lack of a better term, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to call this the ritual aspect, okay? The ritual. Now, it, it's, that has a negative connotation, oftentimes. We think ritual, we think, oh no, you know, high church or something, and, uh, you know, well, that's, we're Protestants, we don't do that stuff. Um, but let's take away the negative connotation. What is a ritual? It, it's a, uh, we also use the term liturgy, right? And again, we, we say, oh, we're not liturgical. Well, actually, liturgy is just an order of service. That's all the word means. And we have an order of service. It's planned out. It's thought out. And it's okay. It's even, uh, it's biblical. And it's kind of necessary, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, God gave the Jews the ceremonies. They gave them the feasts. God even gave them prayers to recite, okay? And then in the New Testament, uh, God speaks through Paul. And uh, in 1 Corinthians, it's kind of the primary place we find instruction, but it's not the only one. But uh, through Paul, he tells us that worship is to be orderly, okay? Um, it is not to be chaotic. It is not to be, you know, well, this guy's going to sing his own song, and while he's singing, some other guy's going to sing his song, and, uh, you know, one person's over here, you know, praying in tongues or whatever, and then five other people are doing the same thing, and someone comes up to prophesy or whatever, and just chaos, chaos. Paul's, Paul criticized the Corinthians because their church services had fallen into chaos. He said, no, we've got to swing the pendulum back here, get some order, okay? So it's biblical to have that order, um, there's a balance, though, that gets struck, that has to be found, and that's the balance between rigidity and fluidity, okay? Rigidity and fluidity. The balance uh, is very difficult, but at some point, the structure of a morning worship service becomes too rigid, and when it becomes too rigid, it stifles our worship. Worship can become very routine. It can become very impersonal, and the, the symptom of a rigid worship service is when the clock has veto power. Okay? What do I mean by that? When the Holy Spirit's moving, I'm not just talking emotions, I'm talking when the Holy Spirit is moving or, or when something is on someone's heart, and we go, okay, that's great that you're getting saved right now or something, but it's time to go. When the clock has veto power on what we do in the service, it's become too rigid. The opposite side of that is the fluidity, okay? And that is when there's not enough structure and the, the church service becomes chaotic, as I kind of mentioned before. And the big problem with a chaotic worship service is that it opens itself up to practices and teachings that are not biblical, okay? There's a lot of ways that that can happen, and I don't have the time to get into it, but understand that if, if there's no structure, no guidance, and when you have too much lack of structure, then there's a lack of uh, authority, right? And then people can say what they want to say, do what they want to say, and it's all treated as equal, okay? So we have to find that very careful difference. Um, what I want you to understand is the ritual aspect of, of church, of scripture, of worship, sorry, is biblical as long as it is not an end in itself, okay? The other aspect is the internal aspect, okay? This is where each believer is expressing his or her individual love and admiration for God, okay? This is the aspect of worship that is rooted solidly in a genuine love of the one who is being worshipped, okay? Now, I have ritual worship or ritual aspect for the external 
And, and my key word I want you to remember for the internal worship is the romantic aspect. Whoa! I know someone out there is going, time out. Romance and church don't go together. Okay? Um, well, actually, they, they kind of do. I want to ask you a question. Who do you think invented romance? The Romans. No, no, it wasn't the Romans. <laughs> Nothing to do with that. Who invented romance? Look in the scripture and what you discover is God invented this stuff. Okay? Throughout scripture, there are so many references to this idea that God, and in particular Jesus Christ, loves his people. And he loves them not just like that, you know, oh yeah, I love you, that's great, you know, I care for you. He loves them passionately. And he loves them in a way that is no less than romantic. It is much more than romantic. But it is certainly not less than romantic. And if you don't believe me, read the end of the book. Okay? What does Revelation end with? The wedding feast of the Lamb. And then what happens after the wedding feast? You have um, God and man are together forever. Okay? Look, God is so cool. He wrote the original princess story. How many of you guys like Disney princesses? Come on, Kira. Come on, Mackenzie. I know you do. You guys like Disney... Why do we like the Disney princess story? Because there's a problem in some dashing debonair person, usually at the night, sometimes somebody less worthy, we think, comes along and they save the day, and then they live... Very good. Happily ever after. Revelation is the ultimate princess story, and it even has the happily ever after. This is the end of the book, okay? It's all one long section. It starts in chapter 21, goes through 22. But just a short little taste of it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. If that's not the ending to a Disney princess movie, it ought to be. Because that's the ultimate. And that's what our hearts long for. We're designed to want this. And I think that's why those kinds of things end with us. Why they resonate with us so well. Any Princess Bride fans? Princess Bride? Since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind. I saw it once. <laughs> or more. <laughs> now, here's what's really interesting, though. Um, this, this romantic love aspect, this internal aspect of our worship, really is what makes our worship different from the world's. Okay? This is my second big idea. Is that to, to worship God, we have to love God. You know, the pagan gods are most highly honored 
when people do rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices, right? You look at the pagan religions, and that's the core of worship. It's what do we do on the outside. The ceremonies and the rituals are how they reach to their God. It's how they gain their God's favor. The pagan gods want blind subservience. There is no concept of love in most pagan religions. Look at the major worldviews or religions of today. Islam is probably one of the most dominant. In Islam, man is God's slave. Allah enslaves man. He does not care about their heart. He simply wants external actions. In the new age, God is at best an impersonal force who does not love you. It just wants you to be one with it in a non-romantic, non-personal way. Christian worship is different from all others because of this worship aspect. You see, God is honored when our obedience stems from the heart. Yes, obedience is very important, okay? And uh, there's, again, there's a whole sermon worth on what does it mean to obey God out of love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Um, all those things are very important. But at the end of the day, it's the heart. That's why God says to, through Samuel, has God required the blood of bulls and goats? No, but obedience Saul's problem wasn't that he did it wrong, although he did. He did do it wrong. But why did he do it wrong? Because he didn't care about God and who he was. He didn't care about the holiness of God. He didn't love God. He just wanted to, to get the job done. God said to sacrifice, so I'm going to get it done. Look at Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. There's this long diatribe, if you will. It's actually not that long, I suppose. But, but God goes on a rant, okay, in a good way. And he absolutely puts the smackdown on heartless worship. He says it's vile to him. He says, I cannot stand your new moon festivals and your sacrifices and your feasts. I can't stand that stuff. Why? Because they didn't do it with any desire to please God. They did it because oh, it's the rules and we have to do it. And so then he invites them at the end. That's the part you're probably very familiar with where he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Seeing their sin and their filth and the way they're, they're, they're profaning the worship, he invites them to be washed. He invites them to be cleaned because he is nothing if he's not gracious and merciful that's what sets us apart, okay? So I want you to understand something. If God cares about the condition of our heart when we worship him, if he cares that we actually love him, then the external worship that we do here should be an expression of that internal worship of the heart. And if what we're singing in church and what we're praying in church and what we're learning from God's word is not rooted in a love for God, then it is meaningless. Now, I'm not saying that there's no room for struggle because this comes out. I'll, I'll tell you really quick. Why am I preaching this? Because this has been my journey, okay? I am painfully aware of the fact that 50 to 90 to 100% of the service, uh, I'm mentally checked out somewhere else half the time, okay? And I don't say that with any pride. That's my sin, that's my flesh that's getting in the way. And it's, a, it's been a struggle and a battle. 
And so I'm really just sharing with you what I have been learning and what I've been pondering and what I've been trying to understand from God's word. Um, So it applies to me first. I'm not criticizing what I see in Bethesda. I'm criticizing myself. But I hope we can learn together through that. I think one of the reasons why we struggle, I say we because I I don't want to feel like I'm alone, okay? (laughs) It's the royal we. No. Um, One of the reasons why I struggle anyway is that this idea of Jesus in romance, it doesn't exactly jive, okay? Um, Let's be very honest. Our culture has twisted and perverted every concept of love which makes it seem almost unmanly to say, I love another man, okay? But here's the thing. You know, we're, we're okay. In, in Western Christianity, we are okay with this idea that Jesus is the bridegroom, right? It's throughout Scripture. He's the bridegroom. Uh, the church is the bride. Jesus pursues his bride. We like that. We're, we're, we're cool with that. Those are theological concepts about Christ and who he is, right? And those theological concepts, Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, he pursues the bride, that allows us to stay a little bit detached, just a little bit detached. Why? Because, well, it's, it's the church he loves. I'm comfortable with that. He loves the church. But here's where we get tripped up. It's the fact that Jesus is not in love with just the church as a body. Jesus is in love with you and I personally. Very, very personally. You've heard the expression. It's not in Scripture. It's an expression, but I believe it's true. If I was the only sinner on earth, Christ would have died for me. Now, that's hard to really take in. Okay? Because I know me. I know me more than you know me. I know what's wrong with me. And I have a hard time believing somebody could love me that much. But that's the truth. He is in love with you and I personally. And it's not supposed to be just one-sided. It's not just the bride pursuing the bridegroom. It's not Jesus pursuing us. But he wants us to love him and pursue him and even to adore him. And if you think it's not manly... Let me tell you something. The manliest men on the earth that I can think of in history were probably Jesus himself. Amen. A man's man. He put the smack down on the bad people. He showed compassion and mercy and grace. He laid down his life and he suffered. Man alive. We think of the cross. This is bad stuff. Do you realize he did it, it says, without crying out? Let that sink in for a second. That's a man's man. This guy puts General Patton to shame, okay? And the other one is David, right? Talk about a man's man. I like David. These are the words of David. Oh God, you are my God. And earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Like it's in a dry and a weary land where there's no water. Your steadfast love is better than life. I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. If that doesn't strike you as romantic, I don't know what's wrong with you. 
Look, if you don't think this is romantic, I'm going to do something. This, I don't want to be sacrilegious here, but can I just paraphrase this for a second? Baby. Yeah, I know it's funny, but I, I want to be... Baby, I, I seek you. My soul, my inner core, who I am, it thirsts for you. Baby, my flesh faints for you. It's like I'm, like I'm starving for water, like I'm thirsty, like I haven't had a drink in a long time, and you come along, and your presence is like a fresh drink. Your love is better than life itself. Baby, I would die for you. I think about you at night when I'm alone and you're not there. I can't help it. i got to think about you. I stay awake thinking about you. And when I think about you, I sing for joy. I'm never going to sell an album with that, but even if I could sing it, it's romantic. And we think that's a little bit weird, but it's okay. You see, this is not the exception with David. It's not like, oh, well, you found the one psalm in the entire Bible where he does that. No, this is the norm. David's statements of undying love and affection are all throughout the psalms. And God gave David these words. This is the great mystery. This is the word of God. God gave David these words to be said back to God, to guide you and I in worshiping him, to show us it's okay to love him. And yes, it's true, that kind of love-motivated worship is not very different at all from the way that a man woos a woman, or vice versa. What does a man do when he's in love? He writes sappy love poems. He takes time out of his day to talk to the one he loves. My wife's going, what are you talking about? You never did that. I'm not a romantic. I'm trying, and I'm trying. He tells her why he loves her. He holds her hand. He seeks to know her. He longs to be with her. And that is worship. And that's what God wants to have with you and I. So why do we struggle? Why do we struggle in worship? Is it because we're too manly? We're too masculine? Are we too mature for that kind of thing? The Bible says to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Am I, am I too sober-minded for this? Am I afraid to be compared to a girl at a Justin Bieber concert? Yeah. It's true. You know, those are kind of excuses, though, because I, I think it all comes down to this. I think that we rarely actually take the time to consider who this is we're talking about. You know, if Jesus was just a man, then yes, I would say he would be effeminate and immature and silly for us to gush over him and his wonders. It would be silly to throw ourselves at him, to sing praises at the top of our lungs. Uh, for, even for us who can't sing like me, or singing out of pitch and out of key, we would do that for a girl. We wouldn't do it for a guy. It's weird. It would be all that if Jesus was a mere man, but he's not a mere man. We'll do something a little bit weird right now, a little different. Maybe it's not weird. It's different, okay? We're going to try a little bit of uh, liturgical reading who is this person? I want to read this together. Read it with some feeling. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Did you get that? He is the priority of all creation. All things in all realms and in all dimensions and in all times were made by him And through him, that's a mystery. That's blowing my mind. And not only by him and through him, but for him. For his glory, everything, every bit of it, believer or non-believer, animate or inanimate, creature, human, angel, whatever you want to say, was made for his glory. Not only was it made by him and through him and for him, it's held together by him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end of all things. He is the single most important thing in the universe and beyond the universe. And this person that we worship stands in utter distinction to you and I who were separated from him and hostile to him. That's what it tells us. We were hostile. Guys, we didn't even like Jesus, let alone love him. You cannot love Jesus apart from him working in you. But while we were busy trying to not love Jesus... Christ was busy working out the plan of salvation throughout the millennia. Culminating with that moment on the cross when he cried out, It is finished! It is finished. And by dying on the cross, he is reconciling us to himself. He is making us his children. He is making us holy, making us blameless. He is drawing us in and he is wooing us by his love. And we thank God for these things. But let me ask you something. Is our pride keeping us from worshiping him the way he actually deserves? My pride does. And yet, despite that fact, he continues to love. And he continues to be merciful. And he continues pouring grace and grace and love and grace. 
and mercy. Overwhelming, overwhelming. See, Jesus is not afraid of romance. Maybe the world has twisted and perverted everything that's pure and holy. But he hasn't. He redeems. He takes things that are impure and by his blood he makes them pure. That's power. And Satan is thrilled to death that the people of God are afraid to worship him the way that their heart wants to. Now, there is so much more. You know, it, it, I've got a point I'm going to get to in a second. But I'll tell you, if you get nothing else out of this today, I hope you come away thinking a little bit more in your own mind of how amazing Christ is. How beyond description. I, I, I'm using words. We use words, but they're not adequate. I can't even describe how worthy he is. So I'm going to have to trust that the Lord lays it on all our hearts. I'd like to wrap up, though, with, um, with a be, no or do. I don't always say that, but, but most, hopefully in every sermon, in some way or another, however I phrase it, I get to a point, which is a, a be, no or do. Something to be, something to know, something to do. Um, usually I have one. Today I have three. Why not? So my be, no or do. I want you to know today that Jesus is worthy of your affection, not just your love. He's worthy of your affection. I want you to know, to, or sorry, to be unafraid to express your affection for God. I am not advocating that we need to try to turn Bethesda into a pew-jumping church, okay? I'm not saying that whether you feel like it or not, you ought to dance in the aisles. I'm saying let the Spirit lead you here and at home. Don't be afraid to kneel in prayer. Don't be afraid to raise hands. Uh, if, if, you know, it, don't do it because you feel like you have to do it. If you don't feel like doing it, don't do it. But don't be afraid to do it. There are obviously biblical limits to what you should do in church. You know, not, not chaotic, not disturbing the service, um, not doing injury to other people, okay? Um, when I was young, I heard of these Christian bands having mosh pits, uh, you know, where they like violent dancing. That doesn't jive, okay? Not, not violent dancing. But be unafraid to express that affection. Don't be afraid when someone says something great to go, praise God. I never wanted to be that kind of person who always, praise God. But I hope I'm becoming one because I like that idea of not being afraid. And finally, what to, what to do? Focus on what it is that you're worshiping because I think that's what so often lacks. It's the lack of focus. And if I could remember more who this guy is, who this Jesus is, I think it would incline my heart to worship a little bit better. We're going to sing a song here. And um, it's a song that focuses ultimately on, on Jesus' romantic love towards us. I like it. It's a powerful song. And it's got a cool video to go with it. Now, why are we using this? Um, as we sing, this is my hope. I'm hoping that the video side moves and motivates you to remember his power to remember that he is the creator and to think, you know, God could have made a really dull world that functioned. There is no technical need for color in the world. Black and white would have done just fine. But God created a world that is so enjoyable 
and we worship him for that power, the power of life and death. And I hope that the words will remember or will help you to remember to appreciate how loved we really are. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.